Hello, welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. We always pick a new film or a film that is just premiering on a streaming service. What do we have this week, Chris? Well, it was uh, another week of uh, kind of a big deal release at Netflix. Uh, the movie Eurovision Song Contest, colon, The Story of Fire Saga, starring and co-written by Will Ferrell. It's a big deal because obviously Will Ferrell has been a pretty uh, reliable mainstay in the multiplex for a while. And I say that yeah. with hesitance in my voice because <laughs> he hasn't been as bankable as of late. Is that true, Dan? Wow. Uh, no, I mean, he's had some problems. He had the horrific Holmes and Watson uh, in 2018, which I don't know if you've seen that, but basically, no. oh, it's just unwatchable Drek. I mean, terrible. But even so worse was Downhill, which I sat through earlier this year, which is a remake. Um, the film was on. Un- I mean, that film, probably one of the worst wide releases I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and it's sort of Will Ferrell's trying to do a little bit of drama there, but even his comedic stuff, The House, Zoolander 2, uh, his only real hits in the last five years are ensemble comedies like Daddy's Home and Daddy's Home 2. So this is kind of a big step for him to go into this Netflix realm and see how he can do uh, on this platform. Uh, and just to kind of give you the overview, well, what is Eurovision in the first place, Chris? What is that? Yeah, it's something that I honestly am not familiar with uh, or I wasn't too familiar with until we had to do some research for this film. Um, but it is basically an annual spring international original song competition that's been going on since 1956, put together by the European Broadcasting Union. It's hosted by Graham Norton, which who I do know of. I had no idea that he was the host of Eurovision <laughs> until the research uh, for this movie. But um, it does seem like it's kind of been a uh, a, a kitschy kind of uh, almost ironic thing for a lot of people where it's like you enjoy it but it's also kind of fun to mock Um, it's basically the launching point for the careers of both ABBA and Celine Dion Uh, it's cancelled for the first time this year due to COVID-19 so it kind of made sense uh, or it was maybe serendipity that uh, with no actual Eurovision song contest to be had uh, Will Ferrell wanted to do a semi parody it's it's not really a parody I don't know what this it, is it, it, to be honest yeah it walks a fine line uh because just the, so the overview of the story just to sort of put that out front uh two small town singers chase their pop star dreams at a global music competition eurovision uh where high stakes scheming rivals and an on-stage mishap test their bonds which i think is the official netflix line which i guess sort of describes this film yeah uh, but ultimately it's it's about two it's a zany absurdist comedy about to um, people from Iceland trying to win the Eurovision. That, that's it. That's the entire plot. Yeah, it's uh, really not a lot of plot. And, you know, for a Will Ferrell comedy, I don't think there's a lot of jokes either. It It is uh, something that I think we'll get into more towards the release. I know you watched this movie twice. I could barely make it through a single viewing. <laughs> well, I will say this, like the first viewing, you know, it, you're kind of taken off guard. I don't know that much about Eurovision either. I know a little bit about it. Um, so that's kind of like a lot of new information coming at you. And then just the tone of the film is very different than the stuff that you get from Will Ferrell before. And right. it is a Gary Sanchez production as well. So they're the guys that did Holmes and Watson, Vice, Daddy's Home 2 and 1, all the way back to Step Brothers and the other guys. You kind of get this sort of um, you're coming to it with that sort of perspective that like, oh, it's going to be a zany over the top Will Ferrell yelling a lot. 
And it, it's not really that. It's a lot quieter of a film overall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's an interesting step for, for Netflix in general. Uh, because Netflix has only been around in terms of making original films for five years. Not even. Their first film was like, I think, October 2015. Uh, and so... Part of their sort of releasing production, becoming a big studio strategy is getting into comedies, which in general have really fallen off of the box office. I was looking at sort of box office data before we're doing the show. In 2008, 21% of tickets were sold to comedies at the box office total, 21% market share. Last year, it was 6%. Oh. And this, you know, before COVID, all that kind of stuff. So, Comedies have really fallen off the shelf as a sort of popular domestic uh, big movie release. Uh, and so a lot of the stuff that we remember in the 2000s, the sort of knocked up, um, super bad era, that's all kind of dissipated completely. And mm-hmm. so Netflix has been the route for a lot of these comedies to go and they get decent budgets. And you're talking probably 30 to 40, maybe 50 million dollars for a movie like this. Again, Netflix doesn't put out those numbers, uh, but it's definitely in that range. Um, but they've never really had I don't think they've had much success critically with comedies. No, like if you think not. of the original one. Have you ever seen Ridiculous Six, which was the second original Netflix film ever produced? I've released not seen, in December 2015. No, I've not seen a single Adam Sandler Netflix movie. Oh my God, you're missing out. <laughs> Am I? Uh, I mean, it is. I view them as like a sociological sort of experiment. Like, what is this? <laughs> right? <Psy-ops>. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, Ridiculous Six was the first one. I mean, just completely derided by critics. It has a zero Rotten Tomato score. Uh, and a 33% audience score. But here's where Netflix sort of wins the battle here versus the major studios to some degree. They get people to watch this stuff. Uh, Ridiculous 6 was, what did they say here? In January 2016, uh, about a month after release, um, the film had been viewed more times in 30 days than any other film in Netflix history. You know, a completely unwatchable, terrible film, but people are eating it up. And you have this whole history of these films. You have The Do-Over, which was Sandler and Spade. Most recently, you had The Wrong Missy that came out in May 2020 uh, with Sandler. These are all terrible, objectively terrible. Like, there's no way you can argue these are good films, but they're immensely popular. Uh, Murder Mystery was the number one piece of content. This is the Sandler-Aniston I guess you would call it a comedy. I didn't laugh once when I watched it. Um, The most popular piece of entertainment that Netflix released in all of 2019 in the U.S. and Canada. Oh, my God. Now, keep in mind that our viewer metrics are a little bit weird. It used to be like before this year, Netflix would count a view as you have to watch 70 percent of the content or it's not a view. But this year they switched it to two minutes so you have to watch two minutes of something and it counts as a view so netflix is you know playing a little shell game with their financials and metrics and stuff like that but there's no way you can't argue that a lot of these terrible comedies that they put out mascots in uh, october 2016 a feudal and simple gesture uh in january 2018 those two i did watch (laughs) you did watch did you what'd you think of mascots well well, i'm a huge christopher guest fan and this was his first foray into streaming comedy and it's hands down his worst movie it's just really really small beans compared to what he's used to doing and he's used to doing a lot on small budgets i mean this is the guy that is responsible for spinal tap probably my favorite comedy of the 80s and yet he really just tried to do the bare minimum to because he it's kind of felt like he knew he was putting something out 
that was subpar. And so it didn't really matter because it was going to Netflix. And same thing with Feudal and Stupid Gesture. I'm a huge fan of David Wayne from The State and Stella. And uh, he tried to, once again, kind of like Eurovision, walk a fine line between uh, celebratory homage and straight up absurdist comedy. Uh, It's about the life of the National Lampoon uh, co-founder, Doug Kenny. But also it's just felt very kind of drab. It's a little bit better than Mascots, but it's very kind of phoned in and really just uh, felt like I was only watching it because it was there, not because I was seeking it out. I think that's kind of the Netflix motto, though. Exactly. <laughs> you're here, you're bored, watch this. Yep. Uh, that's why I watched Wine Country twice. Uh, and that's why I watched The Wrong Missy uh, the entire way through. Uh, and so these, at the end of the day, like Netflix is, they're a new studio, they're trying new things, but their key to success is viewership. It's not sort of people loving the movies. It's just that they show up and watch them, to even right. not even fully watch them, just a little bit of them. Uh, and that keeps people coming back. It's like a trough of new content is what they're going for. And so this is kind of an interesting experiment where you bring Will Ferrell, Rachel McAdams, who are two, I would say, fantastic. Like You think Rachel McAdams is a game night, fantastic comedic actress. Uh, and Will Ferrell is like, you know, one of the comedy kings of the last 20 years in terms of movies, mm-hmm. uh, bringing them together to sort of, I think, to up the quality of their comedies, I think was the uh, the concept here or the, the goal of Netflix. Uh, and we'll see if that happens. I mean... They've had a lot more success with the more arty comedies. I don't even call them comedies, but they're sort of like they, they walk that fine line. The Ballad of Buster, uh, Buster Scruggs with uh, Coen Brothers, which I guess you could call a comedy. Uh, mm-hmm. Dolomite, Dolomite Was My Name, Private Life, Between Two Ferns. The more absurdist sort of obtuse comedies um, like that, are you know, they just have better reception among critics. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's stuff the, the middle of the road stuff. It's just never hits. There's no sort of knocked up or super bad or old school in this crop of films. They all kind of feel a little bit less than. And I kind of wonder where Eurovision is going to end up on that on that map, so to speak. Right. Um, But maybe we should talk a little about how this movie came into being. Right. So, I mean, it it does seem like something, even if you didn't know this information, if you just watched the movie because it autoplayed on your Netflix menu, it might come off as, as I was saying before, something that feels like maybe Will Ferrell has some kind of reason for doing this because otherwise you would think it just is completely random of all the things yeah. to kind of put the branding on like it's got the actual host from the show and the actual logo and like they worked in conjunction will Farrell went backstage to eurovision yep. to get some information on how to put this kind of idea of his on the table with uh, andrew Steele, who is a longtime collaborator with will Farrell, a uh, former snl head writer um, did the spoils of babylon on ifc as well as deadly adoption the kind of once again kind of half comedy half uh drama oh, celebratory homage to Lifetime movies. And where did this seed come from? Well, it came actually from Will Ferrell's wife, who is Swedish and introduced him to the Eurovision contest in 1999, shortly before they married in 2000. And so it's clear that like here he's trying to have his cake and eat it too, like have some sincere reverence to this thing, this cultural uh, touchstone of European pop culture and uh, but also still constantly make fun of it. It just comes off uh, strange. And we'll get more of that with the re- release and reception. But uh, that was basically what they wanted to do, was to make something that was both very respectful of the Eurovision brand, but also completely skewer it and uh, make it, I don't know, the, I got a lot of vibes of uh, uh, of uh, like Spinal Tap and Christopher Guest movies, because yeah, it's very totally. clearly like trying to, you know, 
not make the subjects of the film um, uh, laughable or mockable, but make the the world in which they are in laughable and mockable, which is tough. It's thing I'd be interested to hear an Icelandic person's point of view on the film, to be honest. Yeah. But yeah, what's going on? What do you think is why would uh, Eurovision both approve of this as well as, you know, hopefully understanding that it's a Will Ferrell absurdist anarchic comedy? Well, I think from, you know, Eurovision, which is the European Broadcasting Union, they, they create that contest. I think what they want to get out of this is they want to they want to really create a beachhead into the U.S. market because it's huge mm-hmm. over in Europe uh, and, and the rest of the world. I think it's it's pretty popular. But in the U.S., not a lot of people are into it. I think this is sort of an attempt at at starting and in, getting into a new marketplace and a new sort of customer segment, uh, which just sounds banal and corporate. But that's what it is. I think um, there's no other reason why. You know, they would approve of this. And I'm sure that they cut stuff like yeah. I'm sure that they got final cut on like a lot of what was happening in this, because I'm sure Will Ferrell would run his mouth for like an hour on camera and say ridiculous stuff that they <laughs> wanted to keep. But then Europe is like, nah, you can't put that in there, uh, right. which I find is it, it, from a comedic perspective. I think that puts you puts you in an impossible situation. Yes. You're trying to satirize something that is approving of you satirizing it, it doesn't really work all that well. Uh, and it really does create a strange vibe throughout the entire uh, movie. I think another point, too, here is that, like, uh, the Iceland angle to this is that Iceland has been part of the competition for 33 years and has never won. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how they got their foothold into sort of centering in on Iceland and, and taking it from that perspective, this sort of underdog story. So that makes a lot of sense with the real-world uh, version of the contest. I mean, in terms of the production... Uh, filmed all over Europe. I know they filmed at some of the Eurovision. Um, they filmed in Edinburgh, London. They did film in Iceland. So a lot of that the shots in Iceland are actually of the country, which is beautiful. Uh, oh, yeah. Absolutely gorgeous. And kind of like my favorite part of the film is when they're in the, like, the little villages and the pubs and stuff and sort of that lifestyle. Right. It's, uh, a, it's elves, a great tourism subplot. ad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, but that's, you know, that's one of the things. There's a sheen to this entire thing. Oh, yeah, totally. That does feel like an ad. It does feel like they're sort of um, they're pushing ice and they're pushing this this contest and this brand on us. And, yeah, there's a story. Yeah, there's jokes going on. But there is that sort of sort of hidden layer. It's not even that hidden uh, throughout the entire thing that kind of takes away from from what the movie's trying to accomplish. Um, and I think, too, it's, it's worth noting, you know, the Netflix production and sort of what they're all about. You know, a, a budget for this, like we stated, it's probably about, you know, 30 to 40 million dollars or 30 to 50. That would be a typical uh, comedic budget for a major studio film. Um, but one thing to note here is that Netflix is really trying to push out as much content as possible. So I'm sure that, like, maybe the idea was half cooked uh, mm-hmm. and they basically gave the thumbs up. And if you remember, if you ever watched South Park, there's a whole running joke on there about uh, in one of the episodes where if you call Netflix, they greenlight your series right when they pick up the phone. And it, this movie does kind of have that feel to it. Uh, just to put it in perspective, you know, Netflix put out two movies in 2015. We mentioned both of them, Beast of no, no Nation and Ridiculous Six. 2016, they put out 18 films. 2017, they put out 40 films. And in 2018, they put out th- uh, 70 films. Last year, 73 films. This year so far, 46 films. And we're about halfway through the year. Yeesh. Right? So... They are really pushing this stuff out there. And what it sounds like to me in terms of the conception and why it got greenlit and the money that was associated with it was that Will Ferrell was attached. He got Rachel McAdams or someone got her to get on board. He got Pierce Brosnan, a good supporting uh, cast, um, uh, Dan Stevens. And the idea is sort of like whatever. 
Uh, but because they had those people involved and Netflix kind of has a blank check policy right now, if you're an established person in the industry, right. they just said, go for it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the results will speak for themselves. Let's dive into that. Like what, what happened here with the, the release and reception of this? How is it, how's it going? Well, it's pretty mixed, uh, as you can hope, probably tell by the tone of this episode so far. It's uh, it's not bad, but it's definitely not good. Uh, the yeah. Rotten Tomatoes All Critics percentage is at 58, uh, and the Top Critics is at a 45. So it definitely seems like something where, you know, critics probably didn't have a lot to say about it. I, I, I kind of felt... Uh, I don't know the first two episodes of Film Trace I was uh, ready even like from the the, the spectrum of really good uh, Defy Bloods Spike Lee tons of great stuff to find out and learn about yeah. that and then to the other side of the spectrum uh, the Kevin Bacon movie The Darkness uh, where it's just so bad you want to find out you know how could this possibly happen but this <laughs> is I mean we've kind of done all three s- types of films now because this is just like the okay comedy and it's yeah. really there's not really anything much to analyze here because like you said i think it does put them in an impossible place where it it didn't have a ton of jokes probably because a lot of it got cut or because they were trying to have their cake and eat it too and so i think that also um will get seen it's just like very visible to a lot of critics audiences on the other hand uh like you yeah. said audiences eat up netflix comedies and so netflix yeah. uh and Will Ferrell, they're not dumb when it comes to business. They don't typically care too much about what the critics are saying and the quality of the uh, end product, which it definitely is, rather than art. It, it comes off as something that uh, Rotten Tomato audiences pretty much universally acclaimed, 81%. Uh, compare that to the IMDb score, 6.7. So you've got a good mix of uh, kind of... Uh, movie nerds and uh, populists and then you've got the letterboxed score of 2.8 which is pretty much your film twitter art school snobs but also very much I think forgiving of a lot of things uh, I've been watching film twitter uh, the last few days since this movie came out and it definitely seems like a lot of people are saying like yeah it's I mean Rachel McAdams is trying very hard and she's good at what she does uh, Dan Stevens stands out in a supporting role but like is there anything really much more to say than that i mean what are the reviews actually saying dan yeah well it's uh you know keep in mind too in terms of audience reception here it's number one right Right. it's number one in the usa of all content so it definitely has that sort of ridiculous six uh feel to it where it's totally critically trashed uh, maybe not to the extent of that movie, but like audiences are eating it up and like, you know, critics, what is it like 50 something percent on Rotten Tomatoes, 58 percent of all critics um, sort of score there. Let's see what they actually said uh, in terms of like the positive category. Um, you know, RogerEbert.com says there's an infectious charm to most of what about Eurovision, um, not unlike the international competition itself. OK, fine. It's kind of fun, like the actual show. But, you know, the the positives are sort of always, I would say, just sort of um, truncated a bit. They're sort of like, yeah, it's good. But uh, the kind (laughs) of movie that, frankly, the lower the expectations of these times are made for, not a new song or even a very good one, but somehow still enough to hum along. Uh, That was Lee uh, Greenblatt at Entertainment Weekly. Uh, again, I put it in the positive category, but not really all that positive. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then a call out to Steven, who I thought was absolutely um, kind of the best guy here. I mean, did you think his performance stood out like a lot of these critics are saying or? I mean, no, <laughs> but I, I was just definitely kind of I. 
Uh, honestly, I really think the only t- like I giggled a few times, but the only time I really laughed is the 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 bearded guy yelling uh, for the ya ya ding dong song. Love that. Was, that, yeah. <laughs> that was that was the only joke that really hit for me. Um, I mean, yeah, he's clearly committing to it, as is Rachel McAdams, but I don't think oh, there's anything yeah. really interesting there. Like, especially where it's like repressed homosexuality turns out to be the motivation of his character. That is just so yeah, stupid. That's bizarre. I mean, in and the homophobia of Russia. Yeah. I mean, that's not something really to joke about, is it? Like, I don't I think know. it's funny at all. No. Um, and on the negative side, what do we have there? What what are the what are people saying? Yeah, I really like this one from Variety. <laughs> um, the story of Fire Saga is like a SNL sketch. A very thin one, a daffy but leaden final third of the show one that's been stretched out for no reason at all to two hours, two hours and three minutes to be specific. That's <laughs> emphasis a- mine. Uh, an example of what can happen when Netflix gives too much unsupervised leeway to an artist to the point that the company becomes the artist's enabler. It's so true. It de- like where yeah. I mean, yeah, like you said, they probably cut a lot of stuff from like the Eurovision perspective. But like they, I fell as- like I thought that I could turn this movie on at nine o'clock at night uh, after being exhausted putting my kids to bed and it would keep me up till 1030. It, I know I fell asleep before the third <laughs> act even began That's because amazing. and so I had to watch the third act this morning to catch up with what happened and uh, I just kind of watched it with a glaze over my eyes like there's so much they could have cut from it. There's oh, like it's so it's so just like wooden and and I mean Jeanette Katsoulis of the New York, New York Times calls it an authentic souffle of tastelessness. I, I absolutely agree. There's really nothing here uh probably one of the most egregious uh crimes of the movie i think would be the the musical mashup glee-esque number in the middle of the uh movie (laughs) that just went on forever including nods to Cher and madonna it's just ugh, i don't know man it's it was a yeah i think it um you know more tribute than parody is kind of what jeanette said at the new york times as well like yes that's kind of what it felt like and we've talked about that you know, because of the brand and because of the sign-on by um, the Eurovision people, it kind of was a toothless satire at the end of the day. Uh, I love that you bring up Glee because my favorite headline from this movie was from the NME, which is a music magazine in the UK, and they called it like Glee on Ketamine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is sort of like, you know, and this sort of brings up, you know, sort of the broader question, two big questions that I have about this movie after sort of, you know, doing all this research and, uh, and viewing it a couple of times. You know, where do comedies exist now where do they live you know do they still have a place in movie theaters when they reopen is the one big question and then the other big question is does netflix have a problem do they have a house style problem i watched a thriller last night uh, called dangerous lies a netflix original and it was a basically a step above a lifetime movie but barely yeah yeah and i kind of wonder you know where is this all going where do you see comedies going and where do you see netflix going with their their original comedies you know and i the, the pro- big problem is i don't think it's just netflix i mean there was a reason yeah. we didn't that we chose a 2015 kevin bacon horror movie to talk about last week instead of the judd apatow king of staten island oh, and God. uh there's also a reason we have avoided talking about the Steve Carell movie Irresistible directed by Jon Stewart. Like when's the last time there was a good big studio comedy? I don't even know if I can pin to point to one off the top of my head. Like I, uh, I th- in sort of preparation for this, I kind of reviewed comedy films over the last many years. Oh yeah. And, and it was sort of like, cause I remember doing a, an episode of Wildline all about this and how rated our comedies were dying and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And, and like there was a phase 
like in the mid 2000s, it was sort of the comedy golden age. It was all that, you know, the improv schools, the Groundling, Second City, Upright Citizens Brigade, all that sort of coalesced into this movement in film and improv comedy where you got like the highs of like a super bad, to some degree a knocked up, originally old school, and then kind of the later ones like Step Brothers and stuff like that. And then by the time you get to I Love You Man, which I know you like and I hate, um, <laughs> the other guys in 2010, it really does drop off. Yeah. Then you get like another wave of like The Hangover, which is sort of taking that style and sort of commodifying it a bit. Yeah. And that goes for a while. And then you have Bridesmaids in 2011. And then over the last five years, it's just I feel like it's just there's has not been another sort of movement or spark like there was in the early 2000s and mid 2000s with that improv style really creating like a comedy renaissance on some level and it's just been dead i mean comedy's yeah. just been dead in the water and i, 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 think, I think i'm i'm taking a quick look here and it, i think that probably like you mentioned earlier game night maybe is the last good yeah uh big studio comedy and that's not even like great of all time uh it's just really good same thing with blockers it was very blockers, solid. same thing yeah. yeah it has that same sort of style to it but, but nothing, i mean nothing yeah nothing really feels like i mean do you remember going to see and you might feel about a little bit different about this film than i do but like knocked up do you remember going to see that in the theater yeah like <laughs> uh, <laughs> i knew it i know i'm just telling you from my perspective i remember and maybe this might be an age thing but i remember my exact experience going to see old school opening weekend wedding crashers knocked up super bad full theaters everybody laughing literally the entire time yeah. like i left with like a sore stomach because it was so funny and like really with connected with super the entire bad. audience yeah. yeah i mean i think super bad is like the high point of that sort of era with an amazing script and great actors um but yeah i think comedy is kind of in a weird place right now i don't think mm-hmm. people really know what to do with the genre anymore which sounds insane because there's always great comedic films coming out and great comedic talent. But I think in the sort of feature film realm, it's kind of a little bit of a desert. Yeah. Uh, what about Netflix? Like, what are they going to do with, with with their original comedies? Are they winning just because they're getting people to, to watch this stuff? Yeah. Or is, is I, that going to run out? Well, I think you make a good note uh, in our preparation research here. Uh, something that I didn't know, but uh, makes sense that there are two different major film department groups at Netflix, right? One is called yeah. Originals, intended to supply about 20 movies a year with budgets anywhere between 20 to 200 million, which is probably where Eurovision sits. Um, but then there's also an indie group set up for about 35 films a year with budgets up to 20 million. And I think they're really hitting home with that. I mean, I do know that I, I don't watch them, but a lot of the oriented stuff they seem like they know what they're doing uh and that's that's succeeding both uh with its audiences and at least somewhat with critics even though it has kind of a tv movie vibe but then also like with a lot of the art house stuff like i do think that uh dolomite is my name that was a huge win when they got lots of awards for that um they and also just in general for any non-comedy uh, genres, maybe not thriller and horror, but definitely with like drama and art house uh, stuff like uh, uh, Marriage Story, obviously, and The Irishman, and now Defy Bloods. Like they, they've got a toehold in the auteur uh, world as well as the, the the big studio comedy stuff, as well as the you know introducing fresh, new, diverse talent and voice. And I think that they're just trying to do everything. And I is that unsustainable? Maybe. But also, everybody's staying at home watching Netflix now, even more so than they were last year. So, who knows? Yeah, they sort of, they, this year is going to be kind of a big win for them no matter what. Their stock's going way up. 
viewership's going way up because of the pandemic. Well, I think my only sort of, and this is always sort of my criticism of Netflix, is that they're a content creation machine and they care about viewership. They don't care about quality. Right. And like the only reason they care about quality is to win awards yep. like the Irishman and Roma. And I mean, that's my perspective on it. I think they're going to run into some problems here also because you can't really quantify these budgets mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, you can say all oh, this many people have viewed it, but what does that actually translate to an actual revenue? Yeah. Um, you know, is someone going to leave this leave Netflix because your vision doesn't come on their TV once every two weeks or a movie like it is <laughs> sort of I mean, that's like really I'm there's I'm sure there's bean counters at Netflix thinking about that on a daily basis. Uh, so I think they're in a, they're in an interesting spot. But I think to me, Eurovision at the end of the day, from a sort of quality and artistic perspective is a failure. Um, and I think from a product perspective, it's a win. And so mm-hmm. it's one of those sort of double edged swords overall. Um, what do we have for next week? Next week, uh, we're going to look back at the past again. Uh, there's nothing really big new coming out. Uh, we're not going to be enablers of the new Mel Gibson Emil Hirsch movie coming straight to streaming. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we are going to probably enable something a little different, but still bad. Uh, we have a, a weird uh, interest in looking at uh, a movie that will be available on Hulu as of July 1st. It's called The Weatherman, and it's uh, celebrating its 15th anniversary uh, from director Gore Verbinski. It's a family drama starring Nicolas Cage as, yes, a weatherman. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be fun. I hope you guys check it out on Hulu. It'll be free on their platform and then listen to our episode next week. It's going to be a fun ride. All right. Thanks for listening. This has been Film Trace. Film Trace.